You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK Principal. David, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well. I trust all our listeners are enjoying winter. I feel extend my sympathies to those in Victoria who are in lockdown. Uh, I myself am are well, but I've had a COVID jab yesterday and a few after effects today. And But what a pleasure it is to welcome our special guest today. Yes, all the way from lockdown Melbourne, um, Kane Thornton, the CEO of the Clean Energy Council. Look, thanks for joining us and commiserations on yet another lockdown. Oh, that's that's okay. Hi, David. Hi, Giles, and and to your listeners, it's great to be great to be back with you. A bit a little bit gloomy in Melbourne this afternoon as we uh, as we're obviously heading back into lockdown. But you know we're we're pretty tough um, down here in down here in Victoria. We're not like you, uh, <laughs> n- n- Northern Daffodils. So um, Northern we'll, Daffodils. We'll, we'll be fine. We'll get through it. Okay. How's the homeschooling going to go? Look, uh, pretty well. My daughters are uh, a fairly a fairly independent and uh, pretty tech savvy. So uh, this just means they don't have to get out of bed till about eight fifty five each morning and uh, and get their laptop out and kick off. So I think they're quietly pretty happy with it. And and one of them is learning renewable energy. I understand. Uh, she is. She uh, she came home just yesterday and uh, was telling me all about um, the challenges with renewable energy. Why the uh, why it's so expensive and why we can't run the uh, run the country on it. So needless to say, I've asked for the uh, contact details of their teacher. <laughs> I knew that Angus Taylor was actually had a double job as a school teacher in Melbourne, but, um, but there I, you go. Look, I always assumed that generational change was really important to, uh, you know, get the community and our country accelerated on the energy transition. But if that's what young people are being taught, I'm a bit, I'm a bit concerned. Yeah, so are you we're having you on the podcast today because uh, you guys have just is- issued another sort of investment update. And apart from um, a couple of new investments in battery storage, which is very welcome, and the Victorian big battery that we've heard of, and the uh, Walgrove battery in New South Wales, it's a very sorry story for wind and solar. Tell us more. Yeah, well, let, let's start with the, the good news. Um, and the good news is that in the last quarter, we had um, record levels of investment um, commitment to utility scale batteries. So as you said, um, uh, we've been tracking um, previous quarters and the, the last quarter of 2020 uh, at 150 megawatts of utility scale battery capacity. That's leapt up to 600 megawatts of capacity in uh, quarter one of 2021. So a uh, 300% leap in uh, in commitments there, which is which is good news and obviously a sign that investors are very committed to, to battery uh, solutions. But um, yeah, at the same time, unfortunately, we've seen a real slowdown and a stalling in uh, investment flows for utility scale uh, renewables. So um, we've we had just the one project, just 400 megawatts of capacity for the for the quarter, which is. Uh, down uh, about 45% on um, the uh, quarterly average from last year and down 30% on the, the previous previous quarter. 
I just looked at the Clean Energy Regulator's latest report too. So for the month of April, there's just a trickling of stuff in. In fact, I think one single project might have even been less than 10 megawatts. You've previously stated that the two problems sort of putting investors off at the moment is connection issues and commissioning issues and also the sort of federal policy issues. Are those still the big two red flags for investors? Yeah, look, I think I think they certainly are. You know, the... The, the grid and network issues uh, continue and, you know, obviously as we've seen more projects um, connecting and coming online and trying to connect, I think it's fair to say these challenges have just, have just grown. Um, you know, obviously material delays in connections, we're seeing congestion, uh, constraints applied to, to projects. So the risks in that area have just increased and continue to increase, unfortunately. And that obviously all makes investors uh, think long and hard about uh, making their next wave of commitments. But also, you know, obviously government policy and whether that's about the, you know, the lack of a strong national coherent policy um, for climate and energy or, or probably more topical at the moment, um, unpredictable and unhelpful government interventions in the market and you know i guess those two things combined just create more and more uncertainty in the energy market and more concern for investors charles i've got a slightly uh well i would uh, say in addition to the points that keynes mentioned uh not just the federal government but as we've previously remarked we've got the new south wales energy roadmap and all everyone in New South Wales knows that there's going to be a very strong decade-long demand for projects in New South Wales, but uh, the details are still being worked out. So it's only natural to expect everyone to hit the pause button while they're waiting uh, to see how that plays out a bit more. Uh, the second thing I, I would mention is that the prices in the um, in, in the market, the pool market, the wholesale prices have been very low. Uh, and that that's works, you know. We've said a thousand times that low prices will stop investment. That's that's what they're supposed to do. <laughs> and guess what? They worked. Uh, and the third thing that, and this is much more controversial, is that when you look forward, we know that to get to 100% renewables, we need basically about four times, four and a half times as much wind and solar as we have now because we're doing about 20% or a bit more uh, right this instant. So we've got to go up by four times. But the shape, the load shape, or the sorry, the production shape of what we get from wind and solar is very, very heavily influenced by this middle of the day peak in solar. And even though solar is a bit cheaper than wind, it's not a whole lot cheaper. And, you know, I think there'd be a, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a case to be made for hitting the pause button uh, and thinking about the central planning issue and saying that wouldn't it be better if we built most of the new uh, stuff that we need in terms of wind rather than solar? Uh, because then overall, we'd get a much better balance over the day with demand and you'd need to spend a lot less on the total firming investment. But I understand that's a bit controversial. Hmm. Kate, I invite you to respond to that idea. <laughs> look, look, I certainly agree with David on the earlier points about yeah, l lower wholesale prices are, are clearly are clearly having an impact, and you know that there is a lot of both policy, um, you know, change and New South Wales program as an example. There's also a lot of you know a lot of the big market reform work that the ESB is is looking at and progressing. You know, all of that. I mean, a lot of that is quite welcome, and I think really important for the for the medium and long term. 
but it does create a level of uncertainty about what the market will look like and particularly you know uh, some of those ancillary services and you know other new markets what they might look like and how you then play them into the into the business case um look central planning um you know i think i mean our preference is still for for governments to set the market conditions and let investors uh decide you know which technologies and solutions i mean I, you know i think david david's absolutely right in terms of the you know the complexities of um particularly solar on the on the market throughout different times of the day and i think that's a big part of i expect the driver for the sort of investments that we're starting to see in battery solutions because they're obviously a, a big part of helping to, to address some of those those pricing and market issues. Yeah, so, so that's the point. I mean, you can put the battery... Look, don't get me wrong. Uh, no one is a bigger supporter of batteries uh, than me uh, and particularly their role, as, we, as Giles and I will talk about a bit later, in, in actually controlling and running the grid. But... You know, solar and a battery is probably more expensive than a wind farm, to put it at its exact crudest. Uh, and I just think it's not that we shouldn't have a market mechanism, but one of the things that uh, when you're doing PPAs as a state government or something like that, uh, is that you can sort of finesse what it is that you want. You still have market competition, but uh, if you if you have a, a sort of guide or a plan, like I mean, you don't let the markets run a war, do you? You don't just say, uh, you know, we'll we'll we'll, we'll you know, whatever it is, we'll go and invade Afghanistan and let the market work out uh, which who's going to attack who at, at what time. You're going to have a plan, you know, and some objectives and stuff like that. And uh, I'm not too sure Afghanistan's the best idea, best example of having a plan. But still, um, um, but but no, no, I get your point, Tom. But um, but. What we both, what we're all agreed on is that basically coal is exiting the system and probably needs to exit the system. Therefore, as you said, David, we probably need four times as much wind and solar. Therefore, we need to start getting into the system and not necessarily waiting for high prices. Um, Kane, can I just throw this back to you? I mean, you talked about sort of central planning and not really liking that, but you also mentioned the ESB changes and we're going to have another update of the ISP, the integrated system plan. New scenarios will be coming out next month, which are going to talk about, you know, an even quicker transition than was outlined last time, are you kind of confident that these things will actually be able to deliver the change and the sort of the ability to jump over the hurdles that you talked about at the start of this podcast? I, I think you'd have to be a bit delusional if you thought that, um, you know, we're, we've got all the building blocks in place to, to manage the, the change. I mean, clearly we've got the technology and the solutions there, but, um, you know, let, let's face it, we haven't been doing a very good job of coordinating uh, all of all of this and, you know, um, putting aside different views on the levels of government intervention and the nature of that and the role of markets. I mean, clearly, you know, we're still playing catch up in this country. We spent most of the last sort of 15 years bickering about whether climate change was real or not and throwing prime ministers out, out if they said the wrong thing. Um, you know, I think we're just now starting to turn our attention to what's the what does the market need to look like, and you know, I think the ESB have done a reasonable job at having a crack at what that might be. Albeit at the same time, there's just so much moving around. You know, you've got the federal government weighing in to build new a new gas-fired power station. You've got states all, you know, setting levels of ambition and looking at different mechanisms to deliver it. You know, I think the ISP is is a bit of a standout um, as far as 
um, a sensible, strategic, long-term plan. Um, but you know, I think the, we're, the thing we're struggling with now is how do you deliver it and how do you bring each of the different bits of reform, the role of different market bodies, the role of different um, the markets in, in actually delivering the right amount of investment in the right form at the right point in time. And if we just let the market rip um, uh, and wait for uh, the sort of mark, pure market price signals, then um, you know it's going to be a pretty difficult and bumpy, bumpy transition. So it's all a bit of a bit of a mess, to be honest, at the moment. Um, I think people are starting to think longer term, but we are playing playing catch up um, at, at the moment. So yeah, it's not the ISP is is a great document for transmission planning, transmission planning in looking forward. But uh, I argue that we still need to have a separate document that starts at the end where we want to get to, and works back to how we get there from here. And of course, things change very very rapidly. Uh, now we're all talking about hydrogen and ammonia and trying to understand how that might fit in uh, to the thing. And then there's electric vehicles, which are every time I start on them, I nearly uh, blow a boiler uh, because, uh, you know, we just should be incorporating them into our thinking and policies and everything like that uh, because that's just clearly where you talk about being left behind for Australia, but um, Australia's actually keeping up quite well on renewable energy despite the federal government's the way I would put it all, thanks to the federal government's policies with the RET from years ago before, before, before um, uh, you know, the Abbott government. Uh, but, uh, but, but so we're at 20%. 20% is quite comparable with a lot of places, and we know we'll be at 30%. The investment's already uh, taken place for that to, to get there. But an electric vehicles, uh, which can add 30 or 40% to electricity demand, uh, and, uh, 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 you know, we're just nowhere, nowhere at all. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think there's so much... Um, planning and sort of strategic thinking yet to yet to come and i think evs are a great great example of that we should be deep in developing that plan driving the reform you know market technical grid reform that's that's necessary we should be doing that thinking and planning now but instead we're still again we're still catching up with with much of the last decade and yeah i think the same goes it's probably even more challenging on things like rooftop solar and DER technologies. We've now got nearly 3 million Australian homes with rooftop solar and we're only now getting our teeth into, you know, the complex technical standards around inverters and how to take advantage of um, smart technology and how we should be setting tariffs for export, et cetera. We're, we're really playing catch up in, in so many ways at the moment. Um, look, thankfully, you know, I think particularly both um, AEMO and particularly the AEMC, I think, have now kind of got their skates on on these on these issues and are pointing in the right direction. But um, the, the, there's a lot to do in a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Can we just go to the um, Energy Security Board and their sort of um, draft rules? And look, they've they've left a fair bit up in the air at the moment, and it just seems to be a lot more. It still looks like just a a, a bunch of suggested um, ideas. But is there anything there that you guys are just like? just don't want to see or and is there anything there that you sort of say yes that's absolutely fantastic um it's it's pretty open to interpretation which way they're going to go in in many of the key elements at the moment yeah the, there's still a lot to there's still a lot to work through we've we've actually just been holding some intensive workshops between the ESB and and the industry to to make sure we understand what they've they've put forward i think it's fair to say they've they've taken you know they've consulted heavily 
over the last six months. And I think they've taken a lot of our concerns, you know, things like um, uh, what was known as COGATI and, and some of the access reform areas that, that industry was very concerned about. I think they've heard the concerns and I think they've had a genuine go at, um, you know, refining um, different proposals or, or creating some new options. Um, you know, so that there's nothing right now where there's sort of um, immediate red lights or alarm bells going off, but there is a lot of complexity. I think what they've done is as they've thought more about these issues, I think some of their proposals are more complex, which, um, uh, you know, has a different set of risks about, well, how do we understand some of these proposals and trying to understand how they impact the market and, you know, the extent to which they help or hinder some of the the problems or the opportunities that they're, they're trying to open up. So that's that's sort of our early assessment. There is a lot uh, to uh, do. Kane, Kane I, I just wonder, I mean, surely the physical reliability uh, kind of thing, I mean, you must have, your guys must have been uh, thinking about that. Yeah, look, look that, that's the one, that's the one area that um, I think there's growing, uh, well, there's, there's increasing consensus and concern about, I think, um, that's that that certainly there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of positives to that and there seems to be a fair bit of a fair, fair bit of concern about the the physical RRO sort of um, option um, but you know there's still I mean there, there's in some of these areas there's there isn't a lot of detail and there's a lot of gaps to to fill in people making a lot of assumptions about what they mean or how some of these areas might work might work so you know there, there's still a lot to work through over the next over the next couple of over the next couple of months, um, you know, all strength to to the ESB. They've they've still got a fair bit of work to do. Yeah, hey, well, one of the things that I think would worry anyone is that uh, when things are left vague, then uh, the person making the decisions gets to interpret them how they want. And by the time you've worked out, <laughs> wasn't what you first thought it was. Uh, uh, the the horse wrong 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 century has has bolted, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, noting that a lot of these proposals are ultimately, um, if they go forward um, are ultimately going to turn into to rule changes and rule proposals and obviously through that process generally there's uh, a lot of scrutiny and a lot of detail to, to work through but for some of the some of the proposals the ESB have outlined there's a lot of detail to work through between where they are now and and actually um, turning into a rule change in, in some form. Well, given all this, um, given the, the time that all this will take, you know, another two years for the next, or another year for the next ISP, and another couple of years before we get clarity over the new market rules, um, when do you hope or expect to see the rebound in wind and solar, that um, investment that we probably need to um, to to meet the targets that we want to meet? Yeah, look, it's a it's a really tough question. Um, it's yeah, the analysis we release is um, based on what happened in the last in the last quarter or the last year. Uh, it's much easier um, to predict the past and the future. Um, so look, I, I don't know is the short of. I mean, if you look at that collection of issues and barriers, I mean, if you look at grid connection as an example, um, you know. We're working very closely, particularly with AEMO at the moment, on the grid connection process and reflecting on how it works at the moment and how it might be reformed and improved. Um, you know that that's got some good momentum, and we're hoping to see you know as as this year rolls on some some change and improvements to that. You know we know there's you know there's um, real changes like um, the AMC's rule change around um, system strength and do no harm, which is thankfully now being 
being changed that's been um that's um pun intended created a lot of harm for renewable investment and so uh, that change is really welcome um so there's some things that are in play that um take us forward and i think address some of the the you know important risks facing investors at the moment there's others um you know uh, government policy making the sort of wholesale energy market outlook that that still look difficult you know for for, for a number of years to come. And so, I mean, I, I, I think, unfortunately, we're going to see sort of a bit of a stalling in, uh, in commercial decisions around wind and solar utility scale for, for a while to come. Although noting, I mean, the flip side of this is that the customer demand uh, just continues to, to strengthen. Um, and so that's, you know, that's something we're seeing more and more, you know, big businesses make commitments to, 100% procurement of renewables. We're seeing, you know, major resources companies. We're seeing a lot of investment in, uh, you know, early stage demonstration around hydrogen, etc. So there's a real tension here. The customer demand for utility scale renewables just keeps strengthening, um, but those some of those grid and market challenges, um, you know, are, are going to be here for a while longer. Yeah, I agree with you about uh, about the customer demand. I, I do think that's still there. Uh, but I, and I would say that myself, it's not much use talking to the ESB and AEMO about the transmission. <laughs> I mean, uh, they already you're just talking to the cheer squad. Uh, it's the AER, you know, and getting a, a project uh, the, the South Australian one done, you know, would be a good energy connect uh, would be a good start. But anyway, yeah, I I, I agree totally. That. Then my reference to AMO there, and I think it's easy to confuse the the grid connection issues that uh, industry is most focused on is is less about the transmission capacity and backbone, and it's actually more about the specific process that particularly AEMO um, oversee and manage uh, working with the, the renewable proponents, and obviously the TNSPs, the transmission business, have an interaction with that, but it, that that process itself is is has been very challenging. These PSCAD studies is that uh, which seem to go on forever and take you know every expert known to no one on earth to uh, work on them for for quite a while and then they get changed about two weeks after after you first come up with a result. Yeah, the, I mean, the, there's a lot of complexity and you know, obviously um, you know connecting and integrating a renewable project into the into the system is it's complex. Um, but that that process and you know obviously the extent of modeling and interpretation and judgments etc around that are um that they're really they're really challenging guys let's get on to some news of the past week i guess the biggest um event in the last week was a big explosion at the calide sea coal generator in queensland um that had a cascading effect although um digging deep into the or digging what we where we can into some of the events it seems like the two calide c units went out and then it took a little while longer for the calide b to sort of sit there and oscillate for a bit and then they fell over and then the multiple lines crashed and a whole bunch of other coal generators went off the line the resulting the result was um a million or more people lost power for an hour or two and um it was a little squeaky bum time in the evening as um demand uh rose and um AEMO and um, Powerlink and all the uh, local uh, companies struggled to find enough power to keep the lights on for everyone. Um, Giles, it, it, it's like a quarter of a Liddell uh, was lost uh, in, you know, uh, 10 seconds and it took us two days to get over it. 
Yes, look, it was actually a bigger sort of loss of power in terms of sort of um, megawatts and, um, and, and size than, than the South Australian um, blackout, although it wasn't a system blackout. Um, David and, and Kane, I, I'm not too sure what you guys um, make of this. I mean, this is a, a quite a modern coal power generator. Um, we don't know the reasons why uh, one of his turbines has suddenly exploded. Um, some people Charles, in the coalition... Charles, I think the first thing to be said, reading uh, from the uh, power engineers, and I love reading what these guys have to say uh, because they don't say anything very much, so it's always interesting when they do say it, uh, is that, in fact, you know, AEMO and primary frequency control have done a good job. In the end, this was a major incident uh, and frequency was managed very well due to the primary frequency control of uh, all the generators, but I think also in part due to all the, all the batteries, whether it's Hornsdale and uh, other things around there, uh, we've got a, a lot better at managing these shocks, and that's just as well because there's going to be lots more of them in years ahead. The essential point, too, is that there aren't very many coal generators. I mean, this one was like 15% of Queensland supply or something like that, uh, and, and uh, maybe not quite that much, but it was quite significant and, and a, a meaningful share of the whole Australian average demand. And the system survived that. And they're all like that now. Every time a big coal generator goes out, it's a big hassle. And this is another policy imperative, right? The price is low because there's oversupply in the wholesale market. But uh, the, the essential policy problem is to get the new supply built before the old coal generators go away. Someone has to bear the cost of that, right? That's where governments actually have to step in and bear the cost because the the, uh, the private sector needs to earn a return on its capital, but it can't get it out of the market until the coal generator exits. So that's the sort of chicken and egg thing uh, where policy is required. Yeah, well, it's interesting that we, um, I mean, you mentioned battery storage, and um, certainly we wrote an article um, pointing out that what a big battery in Queensland might have done and might have actually stopped a lot of that, um, those blackouts that did happen, a lot of that power loss. And it was interesting to see the Queensland Energy Minister um, rushing straight out to a um, construction site of the one big battery that is being built in Queensland at the moment to announce that it was being built, as everyone probably already knew, and that they're going to build another one at the Tarong Coal Power Station. So, Kane, um, I guess um, nothing like a... Um, a bit of a crisis to um, sort of inspire some yet more um, investments in the right place. Yeah, look, it's, um, I mean, I think it, it instantly triggered a sort of a bit of a, a brawl and the usual um, hysteria between uh, those sort of trying to defend coal and, um, you know, see that it continues to expand and those who take a, a different view. I mean, I think it's worth noting up front. I mean, our first thoughts were, with the workers on site, and I guess glad and pleased that it doesn't appear that anyone was injured in the event. I mean, it looks like an industrial accident in some form or another, and obviously a lot of uh, a lot of analysis and um, investigation to to go. I always um, my eyes glaze over when people start talking about um, rate of change of frequency rock off. It's my favourite acronym, but I, I really don't know what it is, but. Um, uh, there's obviously a lot of complexity about what exactly uh, what exactly happened um, after it after it tripped and impact on the system. But I mean, I, I think the conclusion for me is, I mean, you know, it just highlights the risks in um, a centralised energy system where you've got a, a very small number of units that are very large, and it I guess just reminds us of the strength of a more distributed energy system where you've got uh, a much larger number of um, generators whether it's on people's roofs or wind and solar farms out across the the system and much smaller points of failure and when one unit trips out um 
they're, they're unlikely to have a, a system-wide um, impact as a, a very large coal unit might. <laughs> well, look, I'm glad you mentioned Rockoff because David and I are just about to talk about that. But first, before we do, I do want to do a hat tip to George Christensen, the um, LNP MP, who managed without a hint of irony to, pu- to actually publish a picture of an exploding coal plant on Facebook and sort of say that this was an argument for have yet more coal plants. Um, so it's just that quite extraordinary to me. But David... We actually sat in on a webinar today hosted by Arena and good on them for doing it. It was about grid forming inverters. So this was about um, the next level of inverters, which we see, which which are the things that basically connect wind and solar farms and make batteries do interesting things. Um, and it was fascinating to hear about it. We heard from the people behind the Hornsdale battery about their synthetic inertia and their response to that calide explosion and there was providing inertia, which actually addresses rock-off, because rock-off is basically the rate of change of frequency. So if it falls too quick, it makes it very hard for everyone to respond. You need inertia to slow that down, and this is what the battery was able to prove that it could do. That was really interesting. The other fascinating thing I found about this, David, was that you had people from the transmission companies and from university and researchers and even the AMC talking about a grid without synchronous generation, the future grid and using grid forming inverters and a whole new way to manage the system. Yeah, that's right, Giles. It was uh, even to us uh, old uh, uh, journalism uh, finance types. So uh, it was still very interesting. I mean, this has been uh, uh, one of my hobbies, uh, you know, for the past year or two is to read about all this stuff. Uh, regular listeners might recall that we interviewed Stephen Sproul, uh, at, from Hitachi ABB about virtual synchronous machines. It's not just the grid forming inverter per se, but it's hooking it up with a battery uh, that can provide and absorb uh, uh, real power uh, to maintain the frequency. And uh, you know, uh, we we also had uh, uh, we we've also had uh, pe- uh, uh, actually forgotten, embarrassed uh, uh, on to talk about the fact you don't actually need a high inertia system. It may be that a lower inertia system is much easier to control. So it's this balance between stability and ability to move it round when you need to that that's of interest. Uh, but and of course, the, the arena people, or uh, uh, you know, you're always going to get the enthusiasts. You're not going to get the negative guys turning up and uh, speaking at arena type thing. And we need to remember that uh, this, these the guys leading the pack, not the guys following. But having said all of that, it was very encouraging. Transgrid's putting a battery in at Walgrove to test out grid forming capabilities. Powerlink's doing stuff in North Queensland. The, uh, the Powerlink guy was uh, quite enthusiastic about it. Uh, uh, um, the head of uh, uh, power management, I forget the exact title, at, at AEMO was, uh, you know, clearly, I, I mean, there was a lot of enthusiasm for grid forming in, inverters and virtual synchronous machines and a sort of recognition that uh, they've still got some things to prove uh, for those people that are interested in the technical side of it. Uh, you know, the fact, how do you make a whole lot of them work together? Uh, and, uh, you know, there are other sort of secondary disturbances that, that have to be uh, sort of watched and how do they go in grid following and grid forming invert mode? Is, is, is that a kind of, you know, there's all that sort of stuff. But the fact that we're actually looking at doing that now uh, is, is really very encouraging. And most people on this seminar seem to think that grid forming inverters uh, have a very big future. Mm. Kane, have you got anything to add on that? I don't think you're at the actual webinar today, but I mean, it's um, we are sort of hurtling towards a completely different system. Yeah, look, um, I'm not an engineer, and I don't know what many of these acronyms stand for, and, and much uh, much technical insight. But I, I'm just wrapped that 
we're having this sort of conversation and you know again we know there's an inevitability about the future uh you know shifting towards um an inverter based system and um you know these are exactly the sort of discussions and thinking we should be having it's i'm sure it's it's complicated it's not easy but having you know the work of arena um kind of leading and coordinating this stuff and bring together the right people i think it's ex exactly the sort of work and planning that we need to be we need to be doing Mm. And on that note, I should also just point out that Renew Economy this week has published its big battery storage map of Australia, which is um, all the operating and under construction and proposed and announced um, battery storage projects that we could think of. And some people have pointed out that we have actually missed a couple, but we're going to add them to it. So, but it's a really useful resource and um, quite satisfying to actually get that up as a visualisation. And it's got some sort of um, at least some, some information about each of those projects. And um, interestingly enough, David, um, um, all the operating batteries were installed in 2019. We haven't actually had any new battery connections um, for two years. So um, we look forward to things like the Wargrove battery in New South Wales and the Victorian big battery in Victoria to actually get hooked up. And I think even Stanwell's talking about another 150 megawatts today near their Tarong power station. Uh, ha having said all that and uh, saying how wonderful big batteries are, uh, and they're cheaper, certainly, uh, but we need to remember that household batteries uh, continue to have their very uh, big place being used out at the fringes of the uh, grid, right uh, where the power's been uh, consumed. Uh, and so having the battery right there is sort of very efficient. And I noted today that uh, Tesla have said that they've sold 200,000 of their power walls globally now, uh, which is up from 100,000 a year ago, to, uh, to give you an idea of uh, what's happening on a, on a global scale. Mm, that's interesting. Guys, look, I think it's about time we wrapped up. So um, I'd like to thank our sponsors, uh, Evergen and Pylon, for their ongoing support. Thank all our listeners for um, uh, listening to this podcast and um, glad you're doing so. And it's great to get the free feedback that we do um, through your emails and text messages and particularly at the conferences that we um, attended recently. Um, Kane, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us um, in your first day of lockdown. And uh, I do hope you get out of it pretty quickly because it sounds like you've got an urgent appointment with your daughter's uh, teacher. Thanks. Um, yeah, th thanks, Charles. And thanks, uh, thanks David. We'll, we'll be just fine. I, yeah, I hope my um, colleagues across Victoria get through this period. I, okay, 2020 was a tough year for us. Um, you know, I think we were hoping we were through the other side of it in 2021, but we'll uh, we'll hang in there. We'll, we'll be right. And of course, listening to your dulcet tones on this podcast you know always always lifts our lifts our mood giles one other thing i think uh, our, some, not all of our listeners will have seen was the uh, annual survey released by the lowey group this year which looks at australia's attitudes towards climate change uh, and there was, uh, you know, increased level of support which remains up around 60 or 70 percent for australians doing more and uh, 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 stronger in young people, but also even in old people, a, a clearer majority. But also there's a surprising number of people, I think a majority from memory, actually would favour Australia getting out of coal mining altogether. So, I mean, it's it's this is why Matt Keane can do what he does. It's because it's basically popular. 
An interesting a court decision as well today um, that found in favour, federal court decision that found, found in favour of a group of school kids and an elderly nun um, who um, wanted basically the court to rule that the environmental minister, Susan Lay, um, has a responsibility of taking climate into consideration when she's asked to um, uh, approve or not approve uh, new coal mines such as the Vickery's coal mine in New South Wales. But haven't got time to discuss that now. Um, thanks again once, David. Thanks once again, Kane. Thanks for all the listeners. Thanks to our sponsors once again, Pilot and Evergen, and goodbye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.